Alrighty. I missed y'all last week. I was in pain. <laughs> We're in the process of moving and I tweaked my back. <laughs> I was laid up. So just pray I don't do that again. I'm still moving. That's right. We're still moving. We're not done yet. Uh, Lord's will will close the end of March and hopefully buy our new house by the same, around the same time. Because I don't want to have all my stuff sitting out in front of a house in a U-Haul. But if that's what we have to do, that's what will happen. <laughs> all right. So this week, I forgot my clicker, and I apologize for that. We're in Luke's Gospel, of course. Luke chapter 3. Uh, I believe Jeff taught it, got us through Luke chapter 2 last week. So we're going to pick up with Luke 3, which includes... A brief outline of what that is. In Luke 3, we run into the proclamation of John the Baptist, 3, 1 through 20. We look at the baptism of Jesus, and we go into the genealogy of Jesus in 3, 23 through 38. Now, I'm going to just try to pick up highlights of things we can discuss, because there's a lot of meat in there, okay? This is like one of those juicy St. Louis ribs. <laughs> so... We're going to have to start like, picking out the highlight certain points and working our way through them or certain th themes to see if we can try to get through that. And anything that you have to fill in those spaces of what you've studied over the week, please share them with us You know, as we go through this. Because Luke is a very thick gospel. <laughs> very thick. Uh, has a lot of theological implications and a lot of stuff to get through. So the first thing we hit... Proclamation of John the Baptist. Now, when Luke starts chapter 3, he says some pretty interesting things here. It starts out in the 15th year, 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was a governor of Judea, Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Iturea and Traconis, and Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. Now, interesting thing about Luke is, he made sure before he introduces John's ministry, he gives us what we want to call time markers. However, scholars have debated, are these time markers correct? You know, what is this going on? When did John really start doing what he was doing? You know, some of the scholars say some of the following. Did the first year of Tiberius' reign begin in A.D. 11 or 12 when he became the co-regent with Augustus Caesar? Or did the first year begin on August 19th and 14 A.D. when Augustus died? You know, a lot of these questions will come up to try to pinpoint, like, because you have some scholars that will say, well, Luke's uh, times are off. What does this mean? You know, in Critical Introduction, we had to talk about stuff like this, and it used to mess me up. And I'm like, he said what he said, he meant what he meant. <laughs> I mean, it's easy to just leave it that way without examining it. But you have to make points that, you know, looking at this, it's some kind of way he's trying to root us in our past. And the writers of the Bible have a, have a keen sense of giving us these little markers to kind of help us understand who and what we're talking about, what people, what time periods, because... In interpretation of scripture and study, those things are very important. Because if you can kind of get a grip of what, who was there, what was happening, you kind of get an idea of how people may thought about, think about certain things, how they process certain things, how they do certain things. 
So that's why. What's the consensus answer? Did it begin the first or the second? Oh, hold on. We still got more to go. <laughs> it keeps going. Then another question can be asked. Did Luke distinguish between the ascension year and the regnal year and count the periods between August 19th and New Year's Day of that year? Did he include this period between August 19th and New Year's Day with the first regnal year? Which calendar year was Luke using for the regnal years of Tiberius? Was it the Julian calendar? Was it the Jewish calendar? Syrian Macedonian calendar or the Egyptian? Those are a lot of questions. And from what I can see, when I was reading, they didn't have an answer of which one they thought it was. It's like still left it up in the air. So we would have to do a lot more digging on this one. Because uh, this is the, when I read this one, this was the first time I heard about the Syrian Macedonian. I had always heard about the Jewish and the Julian. Never thought about the Egyptian, but I never heard of this one. And uh, timing would help understand some things. But overall, if we couldn't figure this out, we see what he's trying to do. He's trying to give us a marker to let us know, okay, during this time period, this is when John said these things. All right? So we know um, there's some kings in here that are kind of intriguing because, I wish I had my pointer. We've probably been working on this TV. Does anybody remember what's uh, important about Philip? during this situation with John. It was his wife, Herod, uh, and then she didn't like John for criticizing that, and then eventually that. Right. Herod Antipas takes Herod Philip, his half-brother's wife, Herodias, I think it was her name, he took her while Philip was still living, and John called him out on it. How are you going to have your brother's wife? Of course, the woman got mad about it. And you know, if anybody's seen that movie, uh, she asked for his head on a platter. I'll never forget as a, a seven-year-old child watching one of those little Bible movies on a Sunday night. All of a sudden, this man's head is on a silver platter, and this girl screams and runs out after she asked for it. That messed me up for life. I'm like, what stuff is this? This is supposed to be about Jesus. We got decapitations? Okay. So his point is, I believe what Luke is trying to just do is to give us kind of a route to understand. All right, here are the people ruling. Here's what's going on. Because what can happen is, once we know this time period, you can go outside the Bible and look at the history and see what these people did. Like Tiberius Caesar, you know, Augustus Caesar. Any of those would tell you kind of how what the political landscape was looking like at this time period. So, what do we know about John just off the bat from what we get from Luke 1 and 2? What do we know so far? Uh, well, you know, you hear about his birth and mm -hmm. his birth being announced to the temple. His, his father and his, his parents were really old. He's somehow related to Jesus. Right. Like, so, perhaps, or something. It's almost like his birth is kind of rooted in prophetic and historical writings. Old parents, past the time of giving birth to kids, have John. Zechariah and his wife. It's kind of interesting, don't you think? And he, he's jumping in the womb because he heard news of Jesus being born six months in the womb. Right. You know? 
I mean, everybody kicks around that time anyway. So, these things about John are interesting because we believe he's some relative to Jesus, but he, we know he's about six months older than Jesus. Okay? What else do we know about John? He loves him some locusts and wild honey. He's a wild man. You're right. John tended to do his ministry where? Say it again. In the wilderness, out in the desert, by the, down near the uh, think what people say, Dead Sea, somewhere near Jordan area in that region. So this man, he wasn't your typical preacher. He wasn't dressed in a fine three-piece suit. You know, he was living off of locusts and wild honey out here in the wilderness, and he was preaching to folks. So he would be kind of looked like one of the Old Testament prophets. Because what people don't get a lot of times is, prophets were looked at as crazy people. Sometimes. Because of certain ways that they moved and how they did things. Um, what was that he wore? Didn't John, what was that? They described his dress, and I can't think of it off the top of my head right now. Goat? Camel skin. Thank you. Thank you. I knew it was one of the animals. Couldn't remember which one. But his, he wasn't dressed in fine linens. He's out here dressed in camel skin in the desert. He's not eating from the table of the people, but he's eating wild food. But he's preaching. And he's being, to some point or another, he starts drawing people to him. So back in this time period, when you start drawing crowds, you draw attention. You start drawing attention to the power players. Once you got their attention and they realize something's going on, they got to investigate what you're doing. All right. So unfortunately, the references we just talked about, about the rulers, are not very helpful. For There were several years when their rules overlapped. Luke mentioned them less to add chronological precision than to relate to a decisive event of salvation history to the context of the world, of world history. So Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, the term governor, could be used to describe as a procurator or a prefect, which Pilate was the latter. There was a famous inscription they found in 1961 that told us that. Uh, we will encounter Pilate again in chapter 13, 23. Uh, Pilate ruled Judea from AD 26 and 36. Pilate was a rascal, man. I mean, uh, by the time you encounter him with Jesus, Pilate had already got himself in some trouble because of some things he would do. He was almost like an agitator. Well, he was. He was really an agitator. He would do stuff to incite the Jews. And what was wrong, but the one thing about uh, Romans was they would want to always secure Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, which means at all costs, you keep riots down. Don't do anything to cause a riot. Why? Because if you cause a riot, you got to kill people, and dead people can't pay taxes. So a riot is bad for, for, for the prophets, you know. However, does anybody know anything that Pontius Pilate is famous for doing? And we're going to find out about this later in Luke. He did something pretty intriguing and pretty dastardly. At one point in time, he called a lot of people to the temple and then he slaughtered them. He commingled their blood with the blood of the sacrifices. Because they asked a question about something, were mad about something, he slaughtered the people. So, 
He was a rascal. And he wasn't this good guy. He also, what are those things called? Standards. Jewish people viewed those standards as icons, not icons, but uh, idols. So in the night, he brought them into the city and started putting them up everywhere. So when the Jews woke up the next morning, we got standards and they're going crazy. He would incite people like this. I think it was another time with the pilot. There were some Samaritans gathered out on the hill looking for some artifacts of Moses, I believe. He killed them. Pilate did a lot of stuff outside of the biblical narrative to let us know of his attitude. So by the time he encounters Jesus, he's kind of somewhat between a rock and a hard place because of the things he's done in the past. He's got to figure out how to keep this Jesus thing from falling over into a riot because it looks like it's teetering on the edge of that where the people were working. So he's like, you know, if I did something like this, this would cause a problem and I'll lose my job or worse. So he's trying to figure out how to be grown by that time. We'll get to that later. But just remember, Pilate did rule from 26 to 36. Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee is Herod Antipas. Y'all remember him? He's the Herod that went, Jesus went in front of, and he was more intrigued than wanting to see Jesus do a trick. Because he heard about everything Jesus did. Every time I read something about this Herod, he, he, he's very full of himself. I mean, it sounds like Herod's the Smith of the Bible. Yeah, it's a family. You're right. That's a very, very common. Now, their father, they're lucky to make it this far. Because the dad probably didn't even kill him yet. Because he killed four of his sons. Herod the Great killed four of his sons. I think somebody said it was better to be Herod's pig than his son. Because <laughs> Herod the Great was very paranoid. And just so happened, these sons made it out of the house and became tetrarchs. Well, Herod Antipas here, that one is the one you'll see most <clears throat> in the, uh, the passion narrative because he's the one that comes a part of it. He turns Jesus over to Pilate because he's over Galilee. Jesus, remember when Jesus was born, where did they have to go after he was born? Anybody remember? Egypt. Egypt. So it took a while, but when they finally came back, where did they go to live? Nazareth. Where's Nazareth at? Galilee. Galilee. He's in Galilee. He also had brothers who ruled in other places. He had Philip, and there was another, Archelaus. Herod Archelaus was another one. But he was deposed before this period. Because just like their father, they had some corruption to their little areas and their little rules. And once again, when you're dealing with Rome, they found out you're skimming off the top, they're going to get rid of you. So that's where Pilate comes in. He took the brother's place. Archelaus, he took Archelaus' place. Because the Herods ruled Judea for a while. They weren't actually Jews, they were Edomanians. The people who come from the Edom, south of Jerusalem, everything. But they followed Jewish, they knew the Jewish uh, rules and how Jewish life went because they lived so close with them, they assimilated on in. But <clears throat> for the most part, this family plays a big role in this region. So we know Herod, like I said, he's full of himself, and he's so full of himself, he takes Philip's wife. Um, he ruled Galilee as a tetrarch from 4 BCE to 39 CE, or AD, and his stepbrother, Philip, reigned until 34. 
So, what we got right here is trying to figure out when these guys were in power. Because that helps us understand what's happening and when it's happening. You know, and once you start knowing these dates, you can no longer say that Jesus, that the church was started in AD 33. It just doesn't match up. <laughs> but, this is just some of the things we're going to deal with. No matter. Let me see what comes next. Lasagnas. He's the Tetrarch of Abilene. And from what I was looking at when I was doing my research, they said it was uncertain why Luke mentioned him. Some have speculated that it may have been because Luke supposedly came from Syria and Abilene bordered Syria. That's a possibility. So it's not Abilene, Texas? No, not, not ACU. He didn't come from ACU. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, Caiaphas was the actual high priest at this time, but Annas was a high priest from 6 AD to 15 AD, and it was customary to attribute the title to a former living high priest since the high priesthood was a life office. So kind of like a contemporary practice can be found in addressing former presidents of the United States as Mr. President, even though they're not currently serving as president. They've earned that honor, so you still call them Mr. President. Although I would just like my last name. <laughs> and Annas was Caiaphas' father. And Annas was removed because he did not get along with the Roman governor. Mm -hmm. And so the governor gets to appoint who he wants to appoint. And so he appointed Caiaphas and took Annas out. Although the Jews at the time all considered Annas the true high priest. Right. Because you'll see it when you get to the end, when Jesus is taken to everyone's house, they go to Annas' house first. Because mm -hmm. he's the real power inside the Jewish priesthood. Which would be why you would name them both, because naming both avoids right. the political problem of picking one or the other. Right. So Caiaphas was Roman's man, Rome's man. Annas was the people's chosen by according to what they went by. And Caiaphas was Annas' son-in-law. So it was a familial thing. It's, a real, it's real political when you get down to this. A lot of people say, well, there's no politics in the Bible. Yeah, it's really thick, full of politics, especially in this era. You, you, you start to see that. And as Jeff pointed out, with Rome, Rome understood one thing, y'all. Back in this time period, most people were conquering nations when they attempt to conquer something, the first thing they have to take care of is the religious aspect of things. Because if you, unite, if you can unite the people under a religious order, they'll be all right. If your God is my God, we can't fight each other. That's why you had so many people do political marriages. When you have a country, when another country they marry, you bring this God into that house, that's what messed Solomon up. Later on in his life, they start having other marriages, he was bringing in these other gods because he was a peace broker. Because if you had the same God and served him, y'all can't be warring with one another under that same God. <coughs> that was the thinking and the ideal. <coughs> so, Romans, just like any other conquering nation, realized in order to control the people, I got to control the one who's talking to the people. So, like, he, like Jeff just pointed out, Annas wasn't going to say what they wanted him to say. Because Annas was going to stand ten toes down on the truth and get himself killed before he was saying. However, if you kill him, it's going to cause a riot. So what do we do? We depose him and we put his son-in-law in who's very ambitious and wants power and we're going to give him the power he wants. 
he has to toe that line. Because as it says right here, Annas was still holding the influential, uh, what's the word? He still had influence, even while Caiaphas was there. Caiaphas couldn't move without Annas. Because if he did, he wouldn't have the people. Why? Because most of them probably didn't recognize him as the true high priest. And if you're not the true high priest, why are we even talking to you? You know, you're fake. You've just been put in there because they want you there. God didn't put you there. Caesar put you there. Did you see that fight? That would be a good old church fight right there, buddy. That's like one elder going another. Ooh, that would be a split in a heartbeat. And the, and the Jews couldn't couldn't church they couldn't split church plant. There's only one temple. <laughs> yeah, that, right. that is true. Only so, one temple. One yeah. local, local place so, to worship. And and you know, all thing to remember is everything in Judaism revolves around the temple. Yeah. All the money flow is to the temple. That's the true. sheep are to the temple. All when people sacrifice, they bring the money. It all goes to the temple. And these guys control it. These are the people controlling your money, Annas and, Annas and Caiaphas. Can anybody tell me what religious political group they're with? They were Sadducees, weren't they? Yes, sir. Absolutely. That's it. They were the Sadducees. Why do you say that? Why do I say that? Because that's what I remembered them being. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Sadducees t- tended to uh, control the temple. Your Pharisees controlled synagogues. That's how I usually always remember it. And also, when I think about it, the Sadducees held all the money because they were controlling the temple. And Sadducees also tended to play the power game in ways that the Pharisees didn't. The Pharisees, as I understand it, kind of considered that sort of thing um, beneath them and also a... um, a corruption of pure religion. Right. You're right. You are right. The Sadducees dealt with Rome to maintain power. And then uh, they disappear from history in AD 70 because when the Romans attacked Jerusalem, all the Sadducees ran to the temple. Which after May 15, 14, uh, 70, was a really bad choice. Yeah. Because the uh, the Romans barricaded the temple and burned it down around them. And after that there were no more Sadducees. Yeah. It's like the more the more I've read about Sadducees and Pharisees as a guy that grew up Church of Christ, mm-hmm. I I tend to identify more with Pharisees because they had that same sort of anti institutional yes. don't trust the government blending with right. religion that is uh, traditional to Church of Christ thought. <laughs> I, I most certainly agree with you. I was raised there too. <laughs> so, you know, I feel what you're saying. Because I, I grew up thinking of, oh, the, the Pharisees are the bad guys, the Sadducees are just sort of bit players. That's what but, I thought too. Yeah, but it was like, oh, the Pharisees were really more, they, they, they thought in their time more like we've thought in our time. Yes. Um, yes. And the Sadducees were the Sadducees were actually the ones with the power, but they weren't necessarily the ones that were harping on Jesus the same way. Right. It, Jesus didn't become a, a blip on their radar until he started messing with the money. Yeah. When he started messing with the money coming into the temple, then he became a problem to them. While he wasn't messing with that, that flow, they let the Pharisees deal with him for the most part. 
is it's like a progression in the in scriptures. You see him start off in the countryside, Pharisees, Pharisees, Pharisees. Yeah. Then when he well, religious it, it's it's the bickering of religious factions mm -hmm. at that point. And Paul even plays on it in Acts when he gets the two to argue. The Sadducees and the Pharisees. Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Pharisees did. And he would play on that. So these two groups do argue. And he can cause that division and strife. Some people even go as far to think that Jesus may have been a Pharisee. Because of why the people in the synagogue get so upset with him. They treated him, if you think about it, they treated him like they treated Paul. Because after Jesus starts doing his teaching and starts moving around, people start moving around behind him. When Paul flipped the script and became Christian, leaving behind his old pharisaical ways, what happens? Other Pharisees started following him around trying to point him out. But is it possible he's one culturally but not religiously? Because Possibly. Yeah. Well, you're, you're always harder on the people that are part of your group. Bingo. I mean, yeah, if you're if you're gonna if you're gonna have if you're gonna have religious fights, you're gonna have a much the the, the, the fight with people in your congregation. Uh -huh. Yeah, it, 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 let's 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 say Otter Creek is engaged with multiple religious battles. We're gonna have the the one with the other half of Otter Creek is going to be much uglier right. than the one with the Presbyterians. Right. I mean, that's basically what you'll have. Um, say for instance, and I've seen it sometimes in churches of Christ where you have uh, a preacher who's preached a certain way for say 20 some odd years and all of a sudden one day he comes to an epiphany and he says, hold on, I'm wrong. I, I'm totally wrong about this. And he starts teaching something that he's never said before. Others he's taught has never heard this before. First thing you would think, they know this man, they would trust this person, but I've come to learn and no matter how they know you or how much they think they trust you, when you, you eat the sacred cow, they're coming for you. <laughs> they're coming for you. I mean, what was that one brother I grew up, remember, Reuben Shelley. Never forget. Brother Shelley growing up, he was like a powerful debater, I believe. And all of a sudden, one day, he went from being a debater to the Antichrist. Overnight is what it seemed like to me. I was just a kid. But I was like, wow, they turned on him fast. <laughs> And then I started reading, when I got older, started studying, like, oh, they did Paul like that too. And it's like they kind of did Jesus this way. Because when you think about it, when Jesus starts teaching, what's one of the questions that people ask? Isn't that Joseph's son? Ain't, ain't, ain't he the carpenter's child? In other words, we know him, we're familiar with this guy. So where is he getting his teaching? Because this ain't what we've been taught. We've been in this synagogue for all our lives. My granddaddy put that brick over there in the synagogue. We weren't taught that. Where did he get that from? And just like you said, that's where your hardest opposition will come from is from home. So that's what we're probably dealing with. So John's preaching. John preaches a, uh, a gospel of baptism and forgiveness of sin. All right, so... John is, I like him because I think John, in my imagination, John is a fire and brimstone preacher. Dressed in the camelot, eating wild locusts and honey. And then if you don't have a dental plan, you can only imagine what his teeth look like and what he probably smelled like. But people kept coming. And he kept preaching this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, he continued to preach this. 
because we know that John, in what he does, he kind of he fulfills Old Testament prophecy. He tells these people, you've got to repent. In other words, you've got to change the way you're doing things, change your mind, and you've got to come to a new way of living. That's basically what he's trying to say. Cleanse yourselves. You've got to be clean, which is not a new thing in Judaism. Judaism centered around cleanliness. They had mikvahs everywhere. Mikvahs are the ritual bathing baths outside the temple. When you go into the temple, you had to dip yourself. You had to wash yourself because you had to cleanse yourself before you took yourself in front of God. You couldn't just come in front of God dirty. Okay? So it used to be when I was younger, I thought this was unique to just Christianity. We still, this is a flow over from Judaism. Go ahead, Jeff. I say, Jeff. John is considered, in this part, an, an Essene, the mm. fourth political party of Israel. The Essenes considered uh, Pharisees radical liberals. That's how right-wing they were, or how conservative they were. They were all about baptism and forgiveness of sins. So when John, and then they also lived in the area where John's running around. So this is like the East Tennessee School of Preaching. <laughs> yeah. And so he would have been seen, they, they would have been standing on the sides applauding that John's coming out basically saying, yeah, you're preach, preach on, brother. And uh, so he's very, he's very much a, and you know, the Essenes lived out in the country, so they were considered I forgot the country, uh, rough, <coughs> uh, you know, very, very, they, with, they withdrew from everyone. Yeah. And the, and the Essenes considered the temple so corrupt, mm -hmm. they no longer went and sacrificed at the temple. They were very, very right-wing. Yes. I guess we would say the right-wing. Ours, ours conservative. Yeah. They, they, they separate Antis. themselves. Antis. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> or covers, I guess. <laughs> I mean, you could draw so many illusions from our heritage. And you see this in there. So that lets you know that the spirit that we see back then had not yet. It's still among us today. But yeah, John would have definitely been recognized as an Essene. Thank you for that, Jeff. I totally yeah. forgot about that. I guess the the uh, when we use conservative right wing, you know, and, and our kind of conjures up certain things. But it strikes me that that while I accept all that, they really preach grace, mm -hmm. forgiveness of sin. That doesn't sound real Jewish to me, but it was. Well, that's because when we think Jewish, we think Pharisee. Right. Yeah. That is not the New Testament Judaism was very broad, and you have the, the Essenes are very. We would be very comfortable in the Essene world. Yeah. It's like they went so far right. They, they, they were they turning were the corner to left. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a good one. I like that. Too far right, you turn the corner to the left. I like that. But yeah, we would, we would. I think if we were back then, we would be close between the Essenes and the Pharisees somewhat, because the terms conservative and liberal to me are kind of buzzwords. Because it depends on what you're really talking about. Are you just talking about politically, or are you talking about theologically? They mean two different things. They mean different things in those realms. So we kind of have to be careful. That's why I'm trying to give you like real life things that I know you can grab with. So that's why I'm having to use our Church of Christ heritage in this. Because we can we kind of model up in there a little bit. And like you, I'm, I feel you, I'm kind of like the Pharisees and Essenes. 
I think I came in, I think I came, grew up to an Essene Pharisaical Church of Christ and rolled to Tennessee. You know, everything was wrong and I was going to hell if I did anything. So that's kind of where it was. But the forgiveness of sin, a present realization of the future eschatological forgiveness at the final judgment. Um, how can I say this? How do people get forgiven at this time period? Not talking about John, but specifically. What do you do for forgiveness at this time period? Does anybody know? David's home. David's home. Oh, okay. Sacrifice. They had certain sacrifices uh, that you would do if you did certain things. You had to take a certain type of bird or a certain thing over to the temple, let the priest examine and sacrifice the right way, and then you will be forgiven. But, you know, this is what he's doing isn't typical. Like you mentioned a second ago. It's not the typical thing people are used to people doing. What do you mean? How is he talking about forgiveness of sin? I don't see him sacrificing that. He didn't come to the temple. He's out here. You mean to tell me God's forgiveness of sins out here? People began, when people started hearing about this, they started coming. Because some poor folks didn't have that money to just go buy the, the certain uh, animal or, or grains. So, so many people were maharats, people of the land. They were broke. You know, they didn't have it. So what do the people who didn't have do? Just live and see it? I guess so. Until the Day of Atonement. When their sins were rolled over. John and Jesus flipped this script. Because when they start preaching about this forgiveness of sins, it effectively will cut out the priesthoods. And what do you mean I don't have to go to the temple? Oh, did you hear that? If he can forgive me here, I don't have to go there. What do you think the Sadducees heard? They didn't hear cha-ching anymore. Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> That's what they heard. This guy's running on a parade. We can't have this. How are you going to have forgiveness apart from the temple? So, as we're going to go through Luke, <clears throat> and in the Luke Acts story here, in the Lucanian narratives, this is the central message, repentance and forgiveness. And this is counter-cultural counter, counter right now for what the people are used to do. So, with John teaching and preaching the way John is teaching and preaching, and then you insert Jesus right in behind him, the people who were following John easily transitioned to Jesus because John got them ready. And John was what we know to be called a herald or a forerunner, one who was going to go before, the one who was meant to come to make the road smooth and straight. Usually forerunners back in the day, if you had wagons or something like that, they would go ahead and fill the holes to keep the route from being so rocky. You know, that's what they basically did. So John is out here trying to fill holes before Jesus comes in behind him. Uh, to go ahead and start doing his ministry. And this is just some references right there. So is there any other historical baptism back then that being done in other places? Um, it wasn't in Judaism, right? And John started John was no, the, 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 uh, the Essenes, well, every, when he's talking about everybody in Judaism, there was baptism. 
the, when you went to the temple, they had the mikvah baths, mm -hmm. which you would cleanse yourself before going to the temple. So that was both the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, the Essenes took that mikvah bath, bath and took it up 20,000 yeah. fold. They had uh, ritual baths. And so you got baptized all the time yeah. in the Essene version of Judaism. Uh, it, it, you know, if you did something wrong, you would baptize. It, it was a symbol of changing of your life. It's kind of like being independent Baptist. Yeah. So it, it was. So what John's doing here is recognized by all the people around, but he is he is taking what they see and throwing the forgiveness of sin. That was not an Essene thing. The Essenes were about changing your life. Mm -hmm. John's layering on. Your sins are forgiven. Change your life, and sins are forgiven. Which, which previous to that, you had to go to the temple for the Day of Atonement to roll everything back for the sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And so John, that's where John's radicalism comes in. Right. Is, and he's saying, you know, I'm baptizing you for this, but the Messiah is coming. Who mm -hmm. is going to give you another baptism right. of the Spirit. Uh, which is going to empower you, mm -hmm. which is also very, very Essene. The Essenes were all about the Messiah coming. Right. And, and they, of all the sects of Judaism, are the ones that said that the Messiah is going to show up soon. Mm -hmm. And interesting enough, their teaching is the Messiah shows up on Pentecost. That's the, the big day in Essene, the Essene sects is Pentecost. Which is interesting enough when the church is started. With the spirit of the baptism of the spirit or fire is, is shows up on Pentecost, which is exactly what the Essenes have been teaching for about 200 years at this point. Kind of interesting how it all kind of lines up. I love that when we do that. Uh, baptism of Jesus, and then we'll stop right here. Um, in this section, Luke reaffirmed the description that Jesus he gave in chapter one and two. He did this in two ways. First, he involved Jesus' baptism. <coughs> Excuse me. In 3.21-22, Jesus' divine sonship was affirmed by a voice from heaven in his role as the Christ or the anointed one that's seen by the spirits to stand upon him. Secondly, what he'll do is he's going to give a genealogy. And he'll give a genealogy of um, that's not only stemmed from David, from whom Christ was to come, but also Abraham and Adam. I think with this genealogy, he takes him all the way back to Adam, whereas in Matthew, that only went to David. So Luke is trying to root him. Abraham, I'm sorry, thank you. And he's trying to root him, like, anchor him in to this narrative of who he is. But that genealogy is through Joseph, right? Which well, one? The one? Joseph, I mean, they, the they, genealogy. They're different. They're different. They are different. The earthly father. The one, the one in Matthew is mm -hmm. very, very Jewish, yeah. which is why it stops at Abraham. And it's very much... Father to father to father to father. Although in Abraham, in Matthew, he has four women in the genealogy, mm -hmm. which is very not Jewish. And they're, and they're not yeah. Jewish women. And they're not Jewish women. Yeah, they're not. But they're in the genealogy. Uh, so, I mean, even, even every time he brings up genealogy anywhere, they still throw the exceptions in to show that he is not, he is everybody. You know, and Luke's, what we talked about last week, he's. Every time you, you bring a uh, 
a rule in, he brings in the anti-rule. Yeah. Now, there's the man at the temple. Oh, let's bring a woman priest prophetess in. And you'll see throughout Luke that you know every time there's someone you expect, there's someone you don't expect. And sometimes in Luke, some of the people name, we don't know who they are. There's some people out there, we just don't know who they are. Um, questions like, why was Jesus baptized? This is just what some people are saying. And But this part, Jesus were repenting, but those scriptures were refuted. Jesus was affirming that John the Baptist's ministry as being from God. He was fulfilling all righteousness. Jesus was originally a disciple of John the Baptist and was baptized by him. And, his, and this fact remained part of the Jesus tradition. Apart from the issue of whether this was true, this was certainly not Luke's understanding. Jesus submitted to baptism as a symbolic anticipation of his passion and death. That sounds Calvinistic. And we simply do not know. That's my favorite answer at the bottom. <laughs> Right. Well, there's another option in there, too, which is that there, there are things that you need to do to be accepted by the group you're a part of. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I, I would certainly not say that that's the only reason. Right. But it is, it is quite possible that... Nobody was going to pay attention to him if he wasn't. I agree. I, I, I can see that. I, I can see that. I mean, you can't go into any group that's tight-knit and not be a part of them. That's like trying to walk into a blood gang or a crip gang and try to tell them what to do. They'll look at you like you're crazy because yeah. you don't know their world. You have to actually become a part of their world, get to know what they're going through before you can speak to what they're having. And I, I can see that. And I, think I mean, well, you know, Paul does the same thing later yeah. when he circumcises <clears throat> Timothy. And even when if, he does that, if ritual. you're going to do that to fit in with the group, you can do this to fit in with the group. Man, this is much easier. Much, much easier. Also, some of the things I do look at when I look at this is I always see a, a kind of type anti type thing going on here or a mirror. Jesus is mirroring what Israel did. And the baptism to me is Israel coming through the Red Sea, under the cloud between water. He's got to do that because as soon as he comes out of there, where does he go? And that's my favorite part of this <laughs> is in the wilderness. And as I said, we had the ancestors and their genealogy. I'll just throw this up here real quick. I don't really like doing genealogies because I get confused. I've been trying to do my own, and I'm all tied up. Because I've always heard that the three times, seven, two times, that's, that stuff has always got on me. I'm like, okay, it's a lot of people is what we can't do. Good. Bet you we can't find this on Ancestry. All right. So that's what the 323 to 38 is dealing with that genealogy. Then what it goes into next after we come out of this, we'll be here next week where we'll go into the temptation of Jesus. Where we'll pick up at. And that's just a brief uh, outline of chapter 4 and the last part's on the other side. But yeah, here's where the fun parts really get to happening. Because that temptation piece is just, oh, I love it. I've written so many papers on that part. <laughs> And the unclean spirit. Because it's very intriguing to me. Because I can see so many parallels with 
Israel and with Christ in those moments. So this is what we'll prepare for next week. We're going through the chapter four a little bit more in depth. Hopefully we'll get through four and five. Well, I can't say we'll get through four and five. <laughs> we're trying. We're trying. So thank you once again for being with us this morning. Y'all have a good week. Be blessed. Be safe. And continue to pray for all those we've lifted up. And continue to pray for Rebecca. She's doing good. God's working. She's home. I'll see you next week. <laughs>